Well, the Hathaways were an extremely poor family. They lived in terrible poverty and hardship. They were very hard workers, though industrious in every way, the story goes. But it says it had never gotten them anywhere, for they had nothing. One day, a wealthy man by the name of Wilson learned of the plight of the Hathaways and decided to do something about it. And he arranged to give the Hathaway family a tax-free gift of $1 million. When the Hathaways were presented with the gift, they could hardly believe their eyes and ears. Why would anyone want to give them such an incredible gift? What have they done to deserve such a thing? And as they began asking questions, they learned that they had done nothing to deserve the gift, but rather it was simply a product of Mr. Wilson's goodness and generosity. The Hathaways were astonished that anyone would care so much about them, and they determined to be eternally grateful for Mr. Wilson's gift. Well, the Hathaways used Mr. Wilson's gift wisely, and at the end of the first year, they had made a good profit on their holdings, and out of gratitude, on the first anniversary of receiving the gift, they decided to hold a celebration to commemorate the generosity of Mr. Wilson. They made it a festive occasion with feasts and decorations and the exchange of gifts, all of which were designed to remind them of the wonderful present Mr. Wilson had given to them. The occasion was a very meaningful one for them, and they decided to commemorate the giving of the gift every year. And thus, at the end of the second, third, and fourth years, the Hathaways celebrated the giving of the gift, adding a little more tradition each year and enjoying the celebration a little bit more. But with the passing of time, a strange thing began to occur. Each year, the celebration became bigger and more elaborate and more costly, but each year one also heard less and less about Mr. Wilson and his gift. The family greatly looked forward to the yearly celebration, each one thinking about how much fun they had had the years before, but fewer and fewer were the references to the generosity of the original gift and its giver. Lip service was paid to Mr. Wilson as the originator of the celebration, of course, but more and more the occasion became a celebration of past celebrations rather than a response from grateful hearts to a generous gift giver. The Hathaways never ceased to celebrate yearly the giving of the gift. In fact, they celebrate it still. But with the passing of time and the proliferation of all the trappings, the whole thing has become almost a chore. Each year they gamely try to recapture the lost spirit of celebrations past. Celebrations which had grown out of grateful hearts in response to the wonderful gift of Mr. Wilson. And each year they exhort each other to try to work up the feelings of joy and wonder and love for one another. They had felt at previous celebrations, but it has become a futile effort. In losing the true meaning of the occasion, they have forfeited the occasion itself. And so somehow, we have become the Hathaways. We have lost Christmas to the celebration of it. And in the process, we have lost the wonder. And like the Hathaways, now we try in vain to manufacture it. Here's a case in point. Look at these different takes on the nativity. Um, This is the hipster nativity. This is the meat nativity. The cupcake nativity. The spam nativity. 
to get away from food, the shotgun shell nativity. And last but not least, the minimalist nativity. And we have settled for symbol over substance. Um, We have become lost. It's no longer about the wonder that is in the midst of the nativity. It is about the set itself. We have become lost in the celebration, untethered to the reason for the season. Um, And so I think Christmas should mess with us. Not, not just busy us or stress us or deplete us and our bank accounts, but it should, it should restore our sense of wonder and awe about who our God is. Perhaps one of the best examples of what I mean when I say the restoration of wonder is in this uh, little clip of a Chicago weatherman viewing the total eclipse last year. Watch this with me. Wow. Oh. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, my word. Wow. This is amazing. What do you think of this, guys? Wow. You did it. Congratulations. <laughs> where are you going to be in seven years? I don't know. I think we're going to be back here again. All right. You know? so right. This is we'll so... see you back here. Look at this. Oh, my word. Look at the horizon, everybody. Uh, look at that. It's like day to night. One of the tweets related to that is that the only thing better than watching the total eclipse was watching the weatherman watch the total eclipse, right? It's, it's just, he is in awe of what he is seeing. And I think um, that when we get Christmas right, it ought to be to us like the eclipses to the weatherman. It ought to make us stop in our tracks. It ought to make us drop our jaws in wonder. Like, we have just seen something truly awesome. Just the sight of a nativity set ought to give us pause. And so enter John's account of the incarnation in John chapter 1. Of God becoming a man at that first Christmas. It's John's account. It's like it's designed to shock the tank. Right, it, so to speak, it, it, it pushes reset and it recalibrates us to what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle of Christianity. Lewis said that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. To Lewis, one of his bloggers writes, Emmanuel, God with us, was not something so easily shaken off. It was something that should shake all of who you are. God with us. The incarnation changes everything. It did for Lewis. And that's why he calls it the grand miracle of Christianity. 
John's account is, is wondrous. I'd like you to listen to this kind of fresh recounting that's rooted in John's uh, account. Watch this with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness cannot recognize it. The light shines through the darkness, but the darkness didn't even notice. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Even in his own land and among his own people, he wasn't wanted but to all who believed him, to those who accepted him, to those who believed he was how he claimed it, would do what he said. He gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became human and lived here on earth among us. The word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came in the brand of his own name, wearing swaddling clothes, love, mercy, and a manger. Three wise men discovered him, and they had no idea they were leading the world to worship him. He told the angels to hold it down, decided he was going down to a small town called Bethlehem to grow and consume the stomach of a virgin whose womb would birth the man that would save the earth, the man who would give me my worth. He did more in three years than most of us do in 30 he fed 5,000 with two fish and five loaves. He told 51 stories to save millions of souls. He mentored 12 disciples to be betrayed by one, denied by one, doubted by one. He was the one to take on all of our mistakes, the weight of all of our secret and known sin, plus the weight of a 110-pound cross. That was after they beat him, slapped him, lashed him, he paid the cost. How could an innocent man withstand death by lethal rejection? Injecting into his veins our sinfulness, our selfishness, just so we could breathe in his righteousness. Jesus Christ is the true spoken word. Hmm. Do you catch a sense of the wonder? In, in these verses at the beginning of John that she began her spoken word piece with, um, just in these verses, there's a mystery that's been revealed to us. In this passage, we look into eternity. We look into the very nature of God. We see the creation of the world. We look into spiritual conflict between good and evil, into the rejection of the creator by his own creation, into the mystery of salvation, the birthing of children of God, into the incarnation of God becoming man, into the changing from the age of law to the age of grace, into the revelation of the invisible God. All of this in John's 18 verses where he speaks of the word. Pastor John Piper writes about this. He says, in the spring of 1974, I was completing my studies in Germany. My main professor had died, and to take his place in one of his courses, a great New Testament scholar named Oscar Coleman came from Basel to Munich to teach the Gospel of John. In the first 13 weeks of that 18-week term, we covered, as I recall, only the first 14 verses of the book of John. 
That, he says, is how rich these verses are. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1. And John there, down in verse 14, he declares Christmas in just four words. These four words. The word became flesh. These are perhaps amongst the most wondrous words ever written. The word became flesh flesh. And he'll go on to say, and dwelt among us. It's called the incarnation of God. God putting on flesh, becoming man. And in order to grasp the wonder of those four words, we have to understand first who this word is and why he came. And towards that end, I'd like to pause and just pray for us. And then we'll continue through this first chapter of John together. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us. We have scales on our eyes. Familiarity has bred contempt. And the grand miracle of Christianity for us is crowded out by lesser things. So have mercy on us this morning, Lord, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and faith to believe in the wonder of the word become flesh. We pray and ask in Christ's great name. Amen. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John is writing this gospel. He's one of the 12 disciples. He also wrote first through third John, the letters that we just studied together as a church family. And three times in these verses, he refers to something better, someone who is called the Word. And that someone, if you were to skip down to verse 17, he's going to reveal is Jesus the Christ. He says, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. In the beginning of what? Um, in the beginning of this book? In the beginning of the New Testament? And I think John is taking us farther back than that. He's going to go way back to the beginning. Because if you were to flip your Bible open to the very first page, read the very first words, how does it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John here it seems he's talking about the very beginning, the beginning of the world, the beginning of time as we know it, and he's saying that the Word was there. The Word existed before the world be existed, before time existed as we know it. When the world began, when time began, the Word was. It's like saying that the Word was eternal. Eternal. The word is everlasting. This word always was. And so John is saying that that baby born in the midst of the nativity, in that manger, had a prior existence, a forever existence. John is teaching us that this Christ child, Jesus, is eternal. Can you get your brain around that? 
a baby that has lived forever prior? It's a wondrous thing, and it leads to what he says next in these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word in the beginning was with God. Right there, before anything else was created, when only God existed, there was the Word, and He was with God. And he says it again, twice for us, beginning the next verse. He was in the beginning with God. And the idea it has been suggested here is a relational one, that the Word was very close to God. The Word was in close fellowship with God. The Word was with God in the beginning before anything else was. And then he says something even more wondrous. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, He was God, and this of course, raises a question if you're tracking with John. How could he be both with God and be God at the same time? And this has been a derailing question for many. Muslims don't buy it. Jehovah Witnesses will retranslate it to say that he was merely a God, not God. And as a result, they render Jesus to be something less than God, and as a result, their faith is something other than Christian. This is not the only time that John would attribute divinity to the Word, to Jesus. In chapter 5, he puts that accusation on the lips of Jesus' enemies. In chapter 5, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It seems best to understand here that John is saying something truly wonder-restoring here. That the Word was both with God and was God at the same time. How can that be? And the answer to that question lies in the beautiful, delightful, mysterious doctrine we call the Trinity. That God is one in three persons. Our doctrinal statement at the church teaches this. We believe in the Godhead. We believe that it exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. Jesus himself would look back on this time with the Father before the foundation of the world In his prayer in John 17, where he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in the beginning, the Father was loving his Son. As Michael Reeves puts it in his His delightful book, Delighting in the Trinity, it says, Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, our God was a father loving his son. In the beginning, before time began, 
God was always in loving community as a father loving his son and vice versa and with the spirit in the mix as well. So this is, this is wondrous stuff. The word who would be born at Christmas as Jesus was with God and was God at the same time. And this is the first wondrous thing we have to grasp about this Christmas season is that this word who would be born the Christ, he is God. He is God. Thomas Aquinas long ago summarized the opening verses this way. He says that John does four things for us in these first verses. First, he shows when the word was. In the beginning was the word. And secondly, where he was. The word was with God. And thirdly, what he was. And the word was God. And fourthly, in what way he was. He was in the beginning with God. So that nativity It holds God. God is in the midst of it. And if that isn't wondrous enough, he says in verse 3, that this word, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the word who was in the beginning with God and was God, he's the maker of all things. And John wants to make sure that we get this, that we grasp the totality of his statement. So he says it twice again, positively and then negatively. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then if we don't get it yet, he says it again down in verse 10. He says, and the world was made through him. This word, who is Jesus, he made it all. Every rock every grain of sand, every blade of grass, every star, every cloud, every child, nothing exists that he did not make. This word, who would be born at Christmas as a babe, made it all, all of it. He is the maker of subatomic particles, of the more than 1,000 mountain ranges in the world, of the 1.7 million species of plants and animals and algae that we've identified so far. He's the maker of the 352 quintillion 670 quadrillion gallons of water in our oceans. There's a lot of water in our oceans. He made it. He's the maker of the 10 quintillion individual insects that are alive today. That's about 200 million insects for every human on the planet. He's the maker of them all. In Colossians, Paul says he's also the sustainer of it. And he binds those things together beautifully in uh, verses 16 and 17. He says that he is the creator of all things and that he is before all things. And in in, in him all things hold together. I love the illustration that Mark Batterson gives us about the the sustaining power of Christ in the world. He says, you may feel as if you're sitting still right now, but it's an illusion of miraculous proportions. Planet Earth is spinning around its axis at a speed of a thousand miles per hour, and you're seated on it. 
Every 24 hours, planet Earth pulls off a celestial 360. He says, we're also hurtling through space at an average velocity of 67,108 miles per hour. That's not just faster than a speeding bullet. It's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. So even on a day when you feel like you didn't get much done, he says, don't forget that you did travel 1,599,793 miles through space that day. To top things off, he writes, the Milky Way is spinning like a galactic pinwheel at the dizzying rate of 483,000 miles per hour. And the little one in the manger, he is managing that. The maker is in the manger. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Eugene Peter renders it this way. The word became flesh, and he moved into the neighborhood. The babe in the straw that was fully God and now becomes fully man. Not instead of. As the creeds say, he is both fully God and fully man awesome sauce, right? What do you do with that? John says it over and over, having established the word as divine. Now, he says, in love, the word stoops and comes down low and he comes among us. He mentions it, he alludes to it in verse 9. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And again in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Here, he is both creator and sustainer, and in his creation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I saw him. I'm an eyewitness. We were eyewitnesses, he says, of what the incarnation of God as a man looked like, how it played out. John is an eyewitness. He was one of the 12. He walked with Jesus those three years. The disciple whom Jesus loved was his handle. But if that's not enough, he invites in another witness in in the next few verses. In verse 6, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Different John. John the Baptist. J.B. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This John, John the Baptist, is a witness And he adds a quote from from J.B. this way down in verse 15. He says, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me in time ranks before me in merit because he was before me in time. It's 
awesome. And John is writing this, and he's invoking John the Baptist's testimony because he's concerned. He's concerned that it's all about the Word. It's all about Jesus. That as great as John the Baptist was, he's just a sign along the way, not the destination. Jesus said, John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born of a woman. And John is making sure that nobody lines up behind John the Baptist. That he pales in concern to the word. He's just a sign along the way, not the destination. He's just an invitation, not the party. Imagine that you got an invitation to go to the White House. And imagine it was a president you liked and you voted for him and all that stuff. Because these days people don't go to the White House. But that's an invitation from Lincoln. I hope if Lincoln invited you, you'd all go. Okay, I'm a... I, I like Abraham Lincoln. I would go. But it's an invitation to have coffee with the president and the first lady. And, and, you, and you're honored and you start showing the invitation around to all your friends. Look what I have. I have an invitation from President Lincoln to go to the White House, which is pretty awesome. Especially these days, if you had an invitation from Lincoln. And you show it around and you're so enamored with it, you frame it, you put it in your living room. And everyone who comes into your house, you show the invitation to, but you don't go. You're content with the invitation. You're enamored with the invitation. And you just forget to go. That'd be like being a follower of John the Baptist over Jesus. That'd be like being a follower of Larry Trotter over Jesus. Which may be the stupidest thing I've ever said. You know, there was a church, and I don't know the ins and outs of this, so I'm not even going to say the name, but there's a church, it was out on the West Coast, and uh, they, were, they were a mega church. They were one of the most influential churches in our country. They had like over 12,000 in attendance at one campus, and they had one of those churches where they had lots of campuses. They had a $32 million budget. 260,000 people every week viewed this guy's sermons. 260,000 people were watching. And then something bad happened, and the wheels came off, and the pastor had to resign. And then they closed the church. I don't, I don't know the inner workings. I don't know the whys. But I wonder if maybe something happened that my, in a phrase that my dad used to say um, that might have happened there. Maybe this fellow got too big for his britches. See, John, the greatest man who ever lived, is just a sign along the way. He's just an invitation to the party, and the party is Jesus. He's just a sign. He's just an invitation. And so is every pastor or teacher you'll ever have. So don't miss it. This is awesome stuff, wonder-restoring stuff. Mary held God in her arms. She carried the maker of all things in her womb. Listen, as 
one of history's best thinkers tries to capture the radical divide that has just been crossed when the creator entered the creation. St. Augustine writes, Our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The fount came down to thirst. He so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Wonder of wonders. The maker is in the manger. And why did he do that? Why has this one come? Why did God so descend? Why did the maker enter the world that he had made? And John, he scatters clues throughout these first verses. In verse 4, he says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And one of the things that Jesus came to be was to be a light. And it's a rich idea. And, and John lets it have all of its richness. Light can represent truth, for instance. It can represent God in all of his goodness, in opposition to godlessness, which is represented by darkness. It can harken back to creation where God spoke light into the world. And John would repeatedly record Jesus referring to himself as the light of the world. And down in verse 9 of our passage, Jesus is referred to as the true light, which gives light to everyone. And that's one of the meanings of that imagery of light, is that of revelation. He shows God to us. He came to show God to us. In the midst of a dark world, Jesus is the light, the true light that shows us God. And he is this for everyone, it says. And he makes this point most clear in the very last verse of our passage down in verse 18 where he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, he writes. In the Old Testament... To see God face to face, so to speak, unfiltered, was an unbearable encounter for any person. It carried a death sentence. Exodus, we hear this. God speaks. He says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But now, our verse continues and says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him to us. And John is an eyewitness says, I've seen him. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And again, this is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is this Word, who was born unto us as Jesus. And because of his extraordinary knowledge of God the Father, remember the Word was with God in the beginning. And because he too is God, remember John says the Word was God. And because he both was God and was with God, he alone can make him known. So that Jesus would later say himself in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and It's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see the Father because he is God. Listen to how other New Testament writers put it. Paul says in the book of Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Want to know what God is like? Look in the manger. He's there. Look at Jesus. He is God. But perhaps one of the most wondrous things in this passage is a troubling one. And it's found in the midst of John's telling of the account of the divine word made flesh in verse 9. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. It sounds like most people, even his own people, refused to believe. They refused the word. The single most wondrous gift ever given was marked return to sender. The single most amazing act of loving sacrifice was rejected as unwanted The single most humble, selfless choice ever made was deemed undesirable. And this is a sorrowful wonder, but it is ever true. We sense it this season as Christmas celebrations soar in our culture, but any mention of the incarnation of God as a babe is drowned out, pushed away from the center of it, all the way to the very periphery, to the edge, a fringe thought, an unbelievable thought that's to be rejected by the story of a jolly old elf and eight tiny reindeer, or maybe a Grinch, or another Hallmark romance. John goes on, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there are some who believed, who will believe in his name, and they become God's true children in an adoptive sense. 
we like to speak of everyone in our culture as uh, we're all God's children. And there's a sense in which, yes, we've all been made by God. We are all his. But in this sense, in the sense of faith, in the sense of adoption, we are not all his adopted children. And it comes back to this. Do you believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh to rescue us from our sins, to enable us to be children of God by that faith? Do you believe that? Do you receive him in that way? See, the incarnation John wrote in his letter, 1 John, is an act of love. Jesus was sent into the world as an expression of the love of God. That's why he came. So that we might, through faith in the one who was God, yet came in the flesh and dwelt among us in order to bear the cross for our sins, all so that we could be children of God. By faith. And so, how will you respond to his act of love? To the sending of the Son of God into the world that we might be his children? The invitation is to believe in his name. You should say yes in faith to Jesus today. Today and enter into relationship with God as your father. Not just as creator. Not just as ruler. But as father as well. And for those who already believe... This season of madness. Slow down. Slow down. Don't miss the wonder. There's someone in the nativity, and he is God. Intentionally set aside some time, recurring time, to ponder this, to wonder about this. No TV on. No surfing Amazon for gifts. Just wonder. Let's recapture the wonder of Christmas that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you'll bow with me in prayer, then we'll stand and proclaim and worship the one who is the Word together. Bow with me, please. Father, forgive us our distractedness. Restore to us, perhaps even for the first time, the wonder of the truth that Jesus is the Word, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. Come to dwell among us, garbed in flesh, because of your great love for us. That he might stand one day in our stead on the cross and bear the penalty for our sins so that we might draw near. But oh, don't let us miss the wonder that the maker is in the manger. The creator is there. God is there for us. For unto us a child is born. And his name is Jesus. For he came to bear our sins. We worship him now and him alone. Stand with me and let's worship Christ.